Well, now it's time to join Charles Hazelwood for this week's Discovering Music. Up for a little deep vein exploration today, Vaughan Williams's suite for solo viola, small chorus and small orchestra entitled Flos Campi, Flower of the Fields, written in 1925. This work is something of an anomaly in Vaughan Williams's output. For a start, written in the mid-twenties, the twenties being a decade when Vaughan Williams wrote virtually no other orchestral music. He was very focused on opera, writing Sir John in Love, The Poisoned Kiss, and Riders to the Sea, as well as his ballet, Job, A Mask for Dancing. And this music is also unusual in his output in that it takes us into much more exotic territory than had hitherto been the case. And Floss Campi, I suppose you could say, is an essay in sonorities. The viola, the solo viola, and the voices in particular explored for their timbre. The chorus have no words to speak at all or sing at all. They hum or they use a variety of vowel sounds. The solo viola is very effective as the choice of solo instrument in this piece because its dark, husky hues perfectly evoke the passion simmering beneath the piece, as we'll see. This score is as carefully calculated in its colour and texture as any by Ravel, who you may remember had taught Vaughan Williams. And in fact, when it comes to wordless choruses, Ravel had very much set the tone with his piece, Daphnis et Chloe, from the first decade of the 20th century. So with regards to Flos Campi, its exotic oriental overtones set it apart from the bulk of Vaughan Williams's work. It's also an essay in the development of one melody into and from another, smoothly and organically. It's a very great pleasure today, ladies and gentlemen, to be joined by violist Philip Jukes, by a small section from the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, led today by Nicholas Whiting, and some members, a small number of members, from the BBC National Chorus of Wales, Chorus Master Adrian Partington. Now, Floss Campi is one, essentially one long, slow progression from a rhythmically undefined and rootless arabesque, which expresses, in this context, desire, the very opening notes of the oboe. Two, at the end, a rhythmically secure, harmonically straightforward theme which breathes fulfillment, contentment and devotion. But Williams uses the Song of Solomon the Song of Songs, as a template for this piece, framing each of the six movements with quotations from that great and sensual book of the Bible. So, of course, the music radiates desire, eroticism, but the melodies are full of a kind of religious devotion, almost hymn-like in places, as if reaching out to touch an unseen power, carnal passion transformed into a mystic desire for union, a love born out of charis, rather than lust. You could say that Vaughan Williams uses these texts just as he used George Meredith's poem in The Lark Ascending, simply as a starting point. You've already heard how the oboe begins the piece, this strange and long opening bar which is marked senza misura, meaning literally without strict time. It's a very strange duet which exists between the oboe and the viola. Let's first of all explore what the oboe has in totality. For a start, his music is based on a Dorian scale. Vaughan Williams always preoccupied with modes. This is a Dorian scale in its original form. So, it's a minor scale. What makes it unusual is that the sixth note is sharpened and the seventh note is flattened. And if you listen to the whole of the opening oboe line, before we introduce the viola, it is all based around that Dorian scale.
The section from the Song of Solomon that Vaughan Williams quotes at the start of this first section of Flos Campi goes as follows. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. By that, of course, he actually means I'm faint with love. I faint from longing. This whole music is the stuff of desire. Now, we heard what the oboe had to say. Underneath the oboe, or around the oboe, comes the solo viola, essentially playing what is, to all intents and purposes, a blues scale in F minor. makes it unusual as a blues scale in F minor is the introduction towards the end, as you heard, of that G flat, which doesn't sit quite so normally within a blues scale. Now that's in F minor. What the oboe had is in E minor. So right at the start of this piece, Vaughan Williams is introducing a very cosmopolitan and sort of far-reaching idea, which is of bitonality. And interestingly, this opening bar was used as an example in the seventh edition of the Oxford History of Music in 1930 as an example of modernism in music, although the book did concede that Vaughan Williams is not an extremist of the modernist school. In any case, this is a tug of war between two tonal centers. We'll put it together. Shortly after that, the strings come in, all of them bar the double basses, with their own kind of tug of war between two tonal centers. The first chord they play is C minor, the second chord they play is E flat minor, two very unlikely bedfellows. Of course, at the same time, if you think hard about that, there is also a tritone suggested in that, because the, the G flat of the E flat minor chord if you put that alongside a C minor chord, you've got what is effectively an augmented fourth or diminished fifth, which used to be, well, it's still known as the tritone, used to be called the devil's interval in music, not to be written in a composition at all costs. I'm going to put all that together now, the strings entry, that is. The bassoon comes in a bar later. You'll hear taking up exactly the oboe's E minor cry, but now with its own flattened A flat, again, the equivalent of an augmented fourth, a tritone. In a development of the viola theme now, we're in G minor, but you'll find that the music almost immediately curls back to E flat minor, this little duet between viola and solo flute. after this we get the first of what are many many canons in this music something Vaughan Williams absolutely loves the idea of imitation and here we get a canon between the bassoon the violas the cellos and the double basses they're in E minor and then at the other end of the spectrum as it were the violins in the upper winds in B minor At this point, we get the solo viola, the trumpet, and the violins, still with that flattened fourth version that the bassoon had earlier on of that main material. 
And it sort of serves to remind us that I suppose this piece is not a concerto. The viola is a leading voice at this point, but one of many voices. Although, of course, the piece does make great demands on the violist. Philip, it, it's not a concerto, but it is in all but name, effectively, isn't it? It is. It's um, not dissimilar in terms of title to a work which was written some years before called Harold in Italy by Berlioz. You've probably heard of that piece. Most people regard Harold in Italy as a viola concerto. Berlioz didn't write it as that. He wrote it as symphony with viola. And that's particularly apparent in the last movement of that work where the viola almost drops out altogether. And this is a rather similar idea. It's not strictly a concerto. It's a work, as Charles said, with a leading line. Uh, and it's part of an integrated musical idea as well, as well as the idea of it being a solo within the context of the whole piece. You hear chunks of solo viola and then it's part of the texture as well. So here is the viola, just as a leading voice, but a voice amongst many. Now, this is the first entry of the choir at exactly this moment, and they have their own set of harmonic clusters. You've got a diminished fifth, again, essentially an augmented fourth, a tritone, between the sopranos and the altos, between the tenors and the basses, D-flat set against G. So, harmonic clusters, one line of force against the stream of counterpoint in the orchestra. So with some exercises in harmonic stasis, this movement, this rhapsodic prelude, draws to an end. An example, a perfect example, of a type of music that relies for its unity not on structural devices, but kinship of themes which grow out of each other, and of course, identity of mood. Philip, this piece was first performed by, and indeed dedicated, to Lionel Turtis. Can you tell us a bit about this seminal figure of the 20th century? <laughs> yes, Lionel Turtis, um, for the anoraks of the viola world um, who like to look at viola and under the microscope um, was something of a godfather to the viola. He was sort of in the right place at the right time. You think if you turn back your minds to the turn of the 20th century and the dissolution of tonality and structure and form, lots of different composers began to look for different instruments to write for than the ones which had been conventionally used in the 19th and 18th century. Actually, you could almost count on the fingers of one hand the significant works for solo, viola, and orchestra prior to the turn of the 20th century. But when uh, people like Lionel Turtis and William Primrose came along, it was the perfect marriage of composers looking for new mediums and someone like Turtis wanting to champion his own instrument. And he did it very successfully. Um, this particular piece, as you, as you know from what Charles was saying earlier on, was written in 1925 when Vaughan Williams was about 53. Um, if you look at Vaughan Williams's music, quite a lot of it features the viola. London Symphony has a big viola feature, talus variations, a lot of his chamber music, fantasy string quintet, big viola parts. There's a suite for viola and orchestra, there's Floss Campy. He also played the viola himself, Vaughan Williams, and as a result of that, I think, Lionel Turtis hooked onto this, so this particular piece, of course, was dedicated and, of course, written for him as well. He did so a great an deal important to, uh, figure. to take the viola out of its formerly Cinderella status. <laughs> now, the gentle undulating figure which we heard in the clarinet, bassoon and the violas at the end of the first movement, the first section, then gives rise without a break to the ruminations of the sopranos and altos and the first violins initially, effectively musing on elements of the Lydian mode, which I'll show you in a minute. But first, let me just read you the passage from the Song of Solomon that Vaughan William quotes at the top of this movement. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, 
The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Now that is depicted through, as I say, use of the Lydian mode. Here's an example of the Lydian mode. I started with the, the E rather than the G, just to illustrate the fact that that's essentially how it's used in this movement. Lydian mode essentially being major, but with the use of that sixth, the E being the sixth, and then as you've noticed particularly, a sharpened fourth, the C natural becomes a C sharp. So listen to how it occurs at the start of the second movement, a lovely kind of limpid phrase. The harmony around them is full of sixths. Again, it's G major, the sixth is the E above the G. The sixths which are so beloved of Vaughan Williams. And underneath them, another theme is stirring, just a little one to two bar figure in the cellos. And here it is all together. how that is just literally a soft haze of sound. The sopranos and the altos in particular passing to each other in antiphony, that particular phrase. And we realized a little later on, well directly where we stopped actually, that the musings of the choir, the other theme underneath, were themes in waiting, or crucial pieces in a jigsaw puzzle, which ultimately give rise to the solo viola's long flowing melody. emerges, the tonality becomes a more settled and healthy and straightforward G major, I suppose, and the oboe's cantabile theme we're just about to hear is perhaps the voice of the turtle heard in the land. Listen to how exactly it's still a flowering of the viola's main melody that we already heard, a warm partner to it. I want to just put them both together, even though they never actually occur both together, just to show you how strong the connection is. So they are very, very close together. I suppose you could just say, though, that the oboe's expression of spring has more bold contours and bigger intervals. We'll play that all together now, and you'll notice that the muted violins have now taken up the Lydian mode style musings of the women's voices from before. now take up the principal song of spring in unison.
now the Song of Spring is delightfully, exotically picked out on Celesta in three-part modal chords. You hear the score almost glows as hummed voices now pick up the Celesta's modal chords. Celesta, then the harp, echoing the theme in diminution this time. In other words, speeded up, diminished note lengths, and the glow fades. And we're left simply with the solo viola and the word cadenza written in brackets. Philip, the viola does go into a kind of cadenza mode, developing the main idea here, doesn't he? When I've been thinking about this piece and this particular section, I sort of prefer to refer to them in my own mind as sort of recitative really, um, and he uses this recitative or cadenza to, to join the movements together in this particular instance. And then it evolves, the third movement actually starts mid-cadenza. My cadenza, he, he writes on the top line, and then halfway through is the third number for the third movement, so it's kind of seamless. Um, the third movement is slightly peculiar. Um, out of all the movements, it's the most fragmented and the one that I find most difficult to bring off musically, to give it some sort of continuity. Um, maybe I'll just play a little bit of it, and you can see how the cadenza or recitative builds up, the way he uses the motif, some of the ideas that he's already been using, and develops them before the full forces uh, arrive on the scene. So this is where, this is kind of the end of the second movement. sparring that music is, how searching it is. And you need look no further than the quote from the Song of Songs, which Vaughan Williams prefaces this movement. I sought him whom my soul loveth, but I found him not. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? So a whole movement about searching this direction, that direction, the other direction, never quite finding closure. Directly after where Philip just stopped there at the end of his so-called cadenza, and much better put by him as recitative, declamation, the women of the chorus come in, in five in a bar, kind of laments the pain of loss when the beloved is absent. get a second viola recitative for declamation and then the voices become more articulate but certainly not conclusive perhaps because in the Song of Solomon quotation we get the words I found him not
this now more sustained sense of forward motion of purpose, as you'll hear in the next section, you can also hear clearly, melodically and harmonically, how there is no closure. Whither is thy beloved gone? We may seek him with thee. Seek, but not find, at this point anyway. Time has come for a new scene and a set of new colours. The fourth section of Vaughan Williams' Flos Campi has, as its preface, Behold his bed, palanquin, in other words, carrying couch, which is Solomon's. Three score valiant men are about it. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Vaughan Williams marks this movement, moderato alla marcia, so a moderate speed, but in the style of a march, but it's very significant that he marks the speed at crotchet equals 90, not the usual crotchet equals 120 you'd expect for a march movement. So it is a very held, a slightly dragged version of a march. So it's a sense of pageant, I suppose, the prowess of Solomon and his warrior companions, all but a pagan march, the theme announced by clarinet and bassoon in strident fourths. This is then filled out in various ways, but the chords always remain in triads, essentially, in other words, three-part chords, moving in the same direction. Therefore, we've got modal harmony again, but sounding now thoroughly eastern, playing out the picture of the Near East, the Song of Solomon gives us. <laughs> Exactly at this point, the viola enters risoluto, resolved, in a high register with a counterpoint to the other martial theme. Philip, it's hard to imagine that Benjamin Britten hadn't heard this piece before he wrote Les Illuminations. There's some real family resemblances in the viola writing. Yeah, I think it, uh, there was a lot of continuity of stuff that was going on at this, around about this time. Frank Bridge, Benjamin Britten, Vaughan Williams, Tertis, Primrose, all this sort of hothouse of musical activity and artistic excellence. Underneath this risoluto entry of the solo viola, you get the bassoon and the basses in a lovely sinewy unison. Essentially, they're in the Dorian mode again. Now the oboe and the clarinet take the viola's part. He has a warm and throaty line, which actually has a lot of the hallmarks of his very first entry in the piece, the viola that is. Emphasis on that bluesy flattened seventh, and his cause is strengthened by all of his siblings, the orchestra's viola section, playing with him in unison. back with the held martial theme but playing fourths double stopping in other words playing two notes simultaneously for the first time in the piece and they're all marked to be played down bows and feroce ferociously philip the, viol the viola is almost becoming like two rather exotic trumpets at this point yes yeah fourths aren't the easiest uh, as any of the string players will tell you fourths and fifths on uh, stringed instruments are quite difficult to play um, if they're not absolutely immaculately uh, measured, they don't have enough overtones and therefore they won't sound as strong or as clear, as well as not sounding in tune, of course. Um, when I was at college, you didn't have to play scales in fourths or fifths. It was always thirds, sixths, octaves, tenths. And now you have to play, because of the demands of classical music, 
now you have to play scales in fourths and fifths as well, so they don't have it particularly easy. So the voices enter shortly afterwards, at long last, to swell the volume of tone in these last fortissimo bars of this movement. In fifths, with the bass, which is an interesting effect, goes against a cardinal old compositional rule which tells you never to write in parallel fifths. But it gives the music a primitive, almost primeval air. Now we'll play Tutti from 15 for four bars. The fifth movement of Frost Campi has the following words before it. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon thee. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O Prince's daughter. This, this, these words always remind me a bit of Imelda Marcos, but there we are. We get the first five bars of this material, which is the most amazing, appassionato largamente, so to be played passionately and with great breadth. <laughs> Then, a second idea, a slow dance that we'll play for you now, thrumming strings and the use of a tabor, which is an ancient drum originally designed to be held and played with one hand, the other holding a flute of some sort. And it imbues the scene with a kind of medieval hue once again, and out of this emerges the viola in the most singing and searing part of its register. Sopranos now provide a counter-melody to this, derived from the same Dorian mode the oboe was exploring right at the beginning of the work and that we've heard smattered along the way. And we're back into the passionate Largamente music. Then the viola suddenly takes us back to the very first section of this piece. Philip, would you just play that early passage? And then here it is, occurring in no less passionate form in this penultimate movement. at this moment, suddenly we get a spasm of agitato in a texture which has already been put forward obliquely, again, right back in the first section. Let me show you where it comes from. Well, here it is in the fifth section of Floscampi, announced by the orchestra and choir, and then taken up by the viola, about as agitato as music can get, certainly in this context. There's another piece of recall. The flute and the solo viola had this right near the very start.
Well, here it's fortissimo and agitato in oboe and cellos. minor chord we're left with there has an additional absolute anguish to it because the viola which you didn't hear that time but will do sits lingering over the top on an a sharp grinding against that b minor tonality unbelievably sour a sharpened seventh and phil we get this short downward turning cadenza again which loosens the tension i suppose and prepares us for tranquilo for tranquility it's another one of these sort of recitative bits he marks cadenza but it's kind of a confusing terminology really and it's again it's a kind of recitative which becomes a transitional sort of link out of the tension of this amazing chord that Charles was just telling you about into the final movement which you've already heard the principal theme. words at the front of this final movement are simply set me as a seal upon thine heart so clearly this is music of devotion a sense of fulfillment that love has actually been attained maybe even consummation <laughs> this is music of touching simplicity now given that he loves nothing better than imitation little canons exactly the point where we stop he sets up a three-part one here violas through the second violins through the first violins you'll hear how it unfurls joins. Again one gets a sense in this movement of the soloist, the solo viola, joining in the textures. At times he's flying higher than everyone else and other times he is very much within the texture. So again, as I said earlier, we're not in standard concerto territory here. And at this point you hear him in unison with the violas of the orchestra. And you'll hear the harp and the celesta once again with their characteristic chordal texture, modal chords based on the theme.
just before where we stopped. The altos of the choir join. We have what is effectively a new vocal line, which is nearly an inversion of the theme. Just going to ask Philip to remind us of the theme. Now the women of the choir, the altos and then sopranos, something which is almost that theme, upside down. I'll put it all together, and you'll hear as the tenors and basses join down the line, that same limpid falling figure, we end up with seven imitating and dovetailing elements to the texture, the harmony, and all set over a rather mystical string drone, a pedal. Notice there's never any great weight of tone. It's deliberately quite hushed, quite held back. Gentle understatement, the order of the day. you might ask yourselves, can you possibly go from here? Haven't we found closure now? But for Vaughan Williams, there must be a rounded balance, a sense of, of revisiting, certainly the bitonal discomfort which began the piece, the lily, perhaps, amongst the thorns. It's now set a semitone higher, that uncomfortable duet between oboe and viola. And crucially this time, it's set over that same drone I just cut off then, which changes everything, Philip, in a way. Yes, the, if you ask any string players, a bit like I was telling you about fourths and fifths, um, if you ask a string player what keys they prefer to play in, they will always tell you the sharp side of the keys, not the flat side. And the opening of the very piece is in the flat side, which always sounds more dull somehow. Um, there's an old saying in uh, string playing, better sharp than out of tune. And um, this particular end section uh, is in the sharpened side. It actually makes it more comfortable to play. Also added to the fact that there's a bass pedal note going on as well to give it a little bit more support. major tune, together with its near inversion, again in the women's voices and the violins, exuding tranquility and contentment returns, reminding us how far we've travelled from the first idea to this, and it sets the seal on the whole work. The choir instructed, as many places elsewhere in this piece, to begin with half-closed lips, and then to close their lips gradually, 
to a complete hum. I'll just give you a demonstration of that on a D major chord. There's quite an art for that, ladies and gentlemen, because if you're not careful when you're humming, it all comes down through your nose, which is not what you want, particularly in music of this sort. It's how to keep what I think they call the soft palate open, even with the lips shut. Let's put it in context. <coughs> So in conclusion, this slender, modest piece, only 20 minutes or so long, is expressive out of all proportion to its size. It's full of novel, uncompromising textures, which must be why even Gustav Holst didn't get it. Remember, this is the man who'd written such pieces of exotica as Benny Mora and Savitri. He said, I couldn't get hold of Floss Campy a bit, and was therefore disappointed with it and me. But he went on to say, but I'm not disappointed in Floss's composer because he has not repeated himself, therefore it's probably either an improvement or something that will lead to one. Other people had misgivings on the basis of the slightly oblique use of the Song of Solomon text. The music was either not descriptive enough or not programmatic at all. So at the Times, directly after the premiere on the 10th of October 1925 at the Queen's Hall in London, the composer has willfully surrounded the flowers of his musical thought with a thorny hedge of riddles. He's made matters worse by his references to the Song of Solomon, which, whether given seriously or not, are certainly not explanatory. He has, rather, willfully raised barriers in the minds of his hearers, which the music itself may not be strong enough to sweep away. Well, the alternative response, which I think definitely has the backing of posterity, claimed that Vaughan Williams seems to have acquired a sureness of touch and a concision which has hitherto been lacking in his art without thereby impairing the apparent spontaneity and effortless simplicity which have always characterised it. Time for some questions. Hi. Um, it's funny you mentioned Hulse and that quote from Hulse because I think out of nearly the entirety of Vaughan Williams' uh, output, this piece actually sounds most like Hulst because there are certainly elements of Egdon Heath, um, hymns from the Rig Veda, perhaps bits of um, even bits of the planets. Um, so I just wondered if perhaps there were some interlinking between the two composers with regards to either this particular decade or with this particular piece. I think it's a very interesting question and I don't really know the answer. I mean, I know that, that Holst and Vaughan Williams were very close friends. They corresponded a lot, they met up a lot, they talked music, they chewed music, they digested music together. They had a lot of tastes in common. I think Holst had been more exotic in his styles and his appetites than Vaughan Williams from an earlier point, hence pieces like Zavitri or Benny Mora. Um, and it's curious that when Vaughan Williams strayed closer to that kind of Holstian territory, Holst reared up and said he didn't like it very much. I don't know what that was about. Beyond that, I can't really give you any detail. I mean, the men were close, but obviously their voices were, to some extent, different. There's a gentleman up there. Well, first of all, no jokes about violas. Uh, to hear it played like that was an absolute joy. Um, Thank you. Can I say, um, it's a beautiful piece, this. I, I've known it for quite a long time. I just wonder if you can explain why it is unjustly neglected. Is it the forces that it requires, perhaps? It's very funny you should ask that, make that particular point. Um, Charles and I were having, rehearsing yesterday and I was sort of bemoaning the fact that it isn't played more, um, given that it's such a beautiful piece. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head. Its peculiar forces don't make it particularly practical 
um, from a number of different points of view for promoters. If you think about, you've got strings, you've got celeste, you've got harp, two percussion, small choir, solo viola. It's a difficult piece to program um, with the single wind players as well. And that's probably one of the practical reasons why it's difficult, not only from a financial point of view, but also from a practical point of view where you've got all the second players or half the players in the wind section sitting around not doing anything at all for this particular piece. There are lots of pieces which have been written um, in, in the past uh, where composers have then found a very fine piece and then written a piece for the same orchestration. Quite a successful way of getting your own music played is to find a, an obscure piece by a great composer and write a piece for the same orchestration because then you've got more chance of it being uh, played. Um, so perhaps somebody would like to write one for this particular combination of instruments and then we might hear it a little more. Time for one more. Some commentators have said that Vormans has a limited number of motifs and surely here we find from back in 1905 and the English hymnal, Come down, O love, divine, and alleluia, alleluia, from For All the Saints. I think you're, you're absolutely on the money. Uh, he, um, as I said right at the start, a number of the themes have an all, uh, certainly a devotional and almost hymn-like quality to them. And I think it's a bit like that old rule of thumb that there are only probably five great stories which bind us as humanity together since the dawn of time and that every new storyteller, be it Shakespeare, be it Plato, be it Sophocles, is only really retelling the same five stories by the same token, there are probably tunes enmeshed deep within ancient British consciousness, which a myriad of different creative artists and composers have just been regurgitating in a, mo in a variety of slightly modified forms over the years. I've no doubt that if you looked through every principal theme of every principal piece by Vaughan Williams, you would find more than a simple set of family connections, which then spread out into folk music, into hymn tunes, such as the ones you just sang. Well, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Together with Philip Jukes, the BBC National Orchestra of Wales leader Nicholas Whiting and members of the BBC National Chorus of Wales, we will now perform for you Ray Fawn Williams' exquisite suite for viola, small orchestra and small chorus entitled Floss Campy. <laughs> 